Hello listeners, it has been quite a while since I created any episode here and it has been a month actually. Today I was unable to sleep and I know I have been busy with work and that's why I haven't had time to create content and I just decided that I'm going to take advantage of this quiet moment and record a podcast. Lately, I started reading classic books like Jane Austen's Not Anger Abbey, and I finally decided to read Emma by Jane Austen. Jane Austen's Emma is really interesting. I actually look forward to reading this one. I have had it on my reading list for quite a while now, and I just haven't, for some reasons, been able to read it, despite the fact that I love Jane Austen's writing. I have a feeling that Emma will is going to be a different, an, an entirely different character than Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, Elizabeth. So let's see what Emma has to offer us today. Oh, and before I start my reading, I'd just like to give a quick review on this series I've been watching on Netflix. It starts with Lock and Key. Lock and Key is giving me the haunting of Hugh House and the haunting of Blind Manor vibes. Kind of give me a haunted house vibe. If you watch those two series that I just mentioned, then you would understand. Lock and Key is so... like I've just watched the first episode, but I think it's going to be really good. I, um, yeah, it's about a family moving into a house and it turns out the house has secrets and the secrets are about to be unveiled, I think. I've just watched the first episode, by the way, so I'll probably review, give a review later on, okay? And then I'm watching something else on Netflix titled... A Mother's Rage. It's an Indian movie, an Indian series. And you don't get lots of this Indian series on Netflix. You get really good ones on Netflix. And this one is really, really good. It's about a girl who died in the first episode. Her mother watched her die. And then she... She... I mean, the girl died because of she was hit by a drunk driver. Turns out the drunk driver was sent to kill the child it's kind of a really really messed up story but it's really good because the mother decides to to she actually comes to the conclusion that her daughter didn't die by mistake and that something else is involved in the death of her daughter and so she starts her research she made some mistakes along the way and she goes through extreme measures to find out what is going on and why her daughter was killed so it's different from every other indian movie i've seen this year i think it's a must watch you guys to check it out and then there is another indian movie i watch indian series it's called a suitable boy that one is just really really good like you just want to relax and watch an indian movie it's highly recommended it's a mix of romance and just love and i like the fact that i included literature in this series 
and it's so different because i mean not i haven't seen a lot of movies where they just talk about literature so freely and poetry so i like the mix of art and romance and family all in one so watch a city blue boy on netflix okay i have watched a lot of movies okay let me mention five more movies that i've been watching on netflix and um, inventing anna outlander i've been watching outlander for a few years now and new episodes are out this 2022 and so i've started watching the latest episodes of season six or seven and then there is one series i'm watching which is titled jimmy and georgia and then there is this nigerian movie i'm watching nigerian series castle and castle that's the name it's really good it's about lawyers and there's so much more to it yeah that's what I, oh let me mention one last series that i've been watching among the many others that i've been watching it's titled princess um oh my goodness i think i've forgotten i'm trying to find out the name um princess wei young <laughs> lee wei young I don't know if you're a fan of Chinese drama, this is a must watch. Okay, everything is a must watch, but this one is really good. It's so, 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 so good. Highly recommended. If you don't like, um, it is not a mix of supernatural or anything, it's just about royalty and empress, the emperor, and just that just royalty and high class people who are high class anyways enough of that i think i'm blabbing because i really love enjoy i really enjoy talking about movies and when i just start it's really hard for me to stop li wen young is about 60 episodes and you could just download it and watch it in your free time It has been really nice talking about movies. I wish I could continue, but I will, maybe I'll I'll push it to another part episode. So let's begin the reading of Emma. Since I can't seem to sleep now, I think reading this will make help me to sleep better tonight. So, if you want to take notes, you're free to get your stationery now and start taking notes. I'm currently holding a cup of warm milk and digestive biscuits because I just have to indulge myself. <laughs> so you can also have some if you like. Okay, enough of me distracting myself. Let's start. Anyways, I was going to say that you can have a snack while you listen to my podcast. So that's a point I'm trying to make. Okay, chapter one. Emma by Jane Austen Emma Woodhouse 
handsome clever and rich with a comfortable home and happy disposition seemed to unite some of the best blessings of existence and had lived nearly 21 years in the world with very little the distress or vex her she was the youngest of the two daughters of a most affectionate indulgent father and had in every consequence of her sister's marriage been mistress of his house from a very early period. Her mother had died too long ago for her to even have of an instinct, an instinct. Oh, sorry. and in this thing remembrance of her caresses and her place had been supplied by an excellent woman as governess who had fallen into short of a mother in affection. Sixteen years had Miss Taylor been in Wood's house family less as a governess than a friend very fond of both daughters but particularly of emma between them it was more the intimacy of sisters even before miss taylor had ceased to hold the nominal office of governess the mildness of her temper had hardly allowed her to impose any strength, and the shadow of authority had now long passed away they had been living together as friend and being now and friend very much attached and emma doing just what she liked highly esteeming miss taylor's judgment but directed chiefly by her own the real evils indeed of emma's situation were the power of having rather too much of her own way and a disposition to think a little too well of herself these were the disadvantage which threatened alloy to her many enjoyments. The danger, however, was at present so unperceived that they did not by any means rank as misfortunes with her. Sorrow came. A gentle sorrow, but not at all in the shape of any disagreeable consciousness. Miss Taylor married. It was Miss Taylor's loss which first brought grief. It was on the wedding day of this beloved friend that Emma first sat in mournful thought of any continuance. The wedding, however, and the bright people gone, her father and herself were left to dine together with no prospect of return to chair on a long evening. Her father composed himself to sleep after dinner as usual, and she had then only to sit and think of what she had lost. The event had every promise of happiness for her friend. Mr. Weston was a man of unexceptionable character, easy fortune, suitable age, and pleasant manners, and there was some dissatisfaction in considering with what self-denying generous friendship she had always wished and promoted the match, but it was a black morning's work for her. The want of Miss Taylor would be felt every hour of every day. She recalled her past kindness, the kindness, the affection of 16 years, how she had taught and how she had played with her from five years old, how she had devoted all her powers to attach and amuse her in health, and how she nursed her through the various illnesses of childhood. A large depth of gratitude was owing here. But the intercourse of the last seven years, the equal footing and perfect unreserve, which had soon followed Elizabeth's marriage, 
on their being left to each other was yet a dearer and tenderer collection. It had been a friend and companion such as few possessed, intelligent, well-informed, useful, gentle, knowing all the ways of family, interested in all its concerns, and peculiarly interested in herself, in every pleasure, every scheme of hers. One to whom she could speak every thought as it arose, and who had bear such an affection for her as could ever find fault. How was she to bear the change? It was true that her friend was going only half a mile from them, but Emma was aware that great must be difference between a Miss Weston only half a mile from them and a Miss Taylor in the house with all of the advantages natural and domestic she was now in great danger of suffering from intellectual solitude she dearly loved her father but he was no companion for her he could not meet her in conversation rational or playful the evil of the actual disparity in their ages and mr woodhouse had not married ellie was much increased by his constitution and habits for having been a valedictorian all his life. Without activity of mind or body, he was a much older man in ways than in years, and though everywhere beloved for the friendliness of his heart and his amiable temper, his talents could not have recommended him at any time. Her sister, though comparatively but little removed by matrimony, being settled in London only six miles off, was much beyond her daily reach, and many a long October and November evening must be struggled through at Hatfield before Christmas brought the next visit from Isabella and her husband and the little children to fill the house and give her pleasant society again. Highbury, the large and populous village almost amounting to a town to which Hartfield, in spite of its separate lawn and shrubberies and name, did really belong, afforded her no equals. The woodhouses were first in consequence there, all looked up to them. She had many acquaintances in the place, for her father was universally civil, but not one among them who could be accepted in lieu of Miss Taylor for even half a day. It was a melancholy change and Emma could not so sigh over it and wish for impossible things, till her father awoke and made it necessary to be cheerful. His spirit required support. He was a nervous man, easily depressed, fond of everybody that he was used to, and hating to part with them, hating change of every mind. Matrimony as the origin of change was always disagreeable, and he was by no means yet reconciled to his own daughter's marrying, nor could ever speak of her but with compassion, though it had been entirely a match of affection. When he was now obliged to part with Miss Taylor too, and up from this habit of gentle selfishness, and of being never able to suppose that other people could feel differently from himself, he was very much disposed to think Miss Taylor had done as a sad thing for herself as for them, 
and would have been a great deal happier if she had spent all the rest of her life at Hartfield. Emma smiled and chatted as cheerfully as she could to keep him from such thoughts. But when tea came, it was impossible for him not to say exactly what he had said at dinner. Poor Miss Taylor, I wish you were here again. What a pity it is that Mr. Wellston ever thought of her. I cannot agree with you, Papa. You know I cannot. Mr. Weston is such a good-humoured, pleasant, excellent man that he thoroughly deserves a good wife. And you would not have had Miss Taylor live for those forever and bear all my old humours when she might have had a house of her own. A house of her own? But where is the advantage of a house of her own? This is three times as large, and you have never had any old rumours, my dear. How often we shall be going to see them, and they coming to see us. We shall always be meeting. We must begin, we must go and pay our wedding visit very soon. My dear, how am I to get so far? Randall's is such a distance, I could not walk half so far. No, Papa, nobody thought of your walking. We must go in the carriage, to be sure. The carriage? But James would not like to put the horses for such logs. Oh my goodness. But James would not like to put the horses to for such a little way. And where are the poor horses to be while we're paying our visit? They are to be put into Mr. Weston's stable, Papa. You know we have settled all that already. We talked of Mr. Weston last night. And for James, you may be very well sure he will always like going to Randall's because of his daughter's being housemaid there. I only doubt whether he will ever take us anywhere else. That was your doing, Papa. You got Hannah that good place. Nobody told Hannah till you mentioned how James is so obliged to you. I'm very glad I did think of her. It was very lucky, for I would not have had poor James think himself slighted upon any account, and I'm sure she will make a very good servant. She's a civil, pretty-spoken girl. I have a great opinion of her. Whenever I see her, she always curtsies and asks me how I do, in a very pretty manner. And when you have had her hair do needlework, I observe she always turns the lock of the door the right way and never bangs it. I'm sure she will be an excellent servant, and it will be a great comfort to poor Miss Taylor to have somebody about her that she is used to see. Whenever James goes over to see his daughter, you know she will be hearing of us. He will be able to tell her how we all are. Emma spared no exceptions to maintain this happier flow of ideas and hoped by the help of Bagamon to get her father tolerable through the evening and to be attacked by no regrets but her own. The Bagamon table was placed but a visitor immediately afterwards walked in and made it unnecessary. Mr Knightley, a sensible man about seven or eight and thirty, was not only a very old and intimate friend of the family, but particularly connected with it as the elder brother of Isabella's husband. He lived about a mile from Highbury, was a frequent visitor and always welcome, and at this time more welcome than usual, as coming directly from their mutual connections in London. He had returned to a late dinner after some days' absence, 
and now walked up to Hatfield to see that all were well in Brookswick Square. It was a happy circumstance and animated Mr. Woodhouse for some time. Mr. Knightley had a cheerful manner which always did him good, and his many inquiries after poor Isabella and her children were answered most satisfactorily. When this was over, Mr. Woodhouse gracefully observed, It's a very kind of you, Mr. Knightley, to come out this late hour to call upon us. I am afraid you must have had a shocking walk. Not at all, sir. It was a beautiful moonlight night and so mild that I must draw back from your great fire. But you must have found it very damp and dirty. I wish you may not catch cold. Dirty, sir. Look at my shoes, not a speck on them. Well, this is quite surprising. We had had a vast deal of rain here. It rained dreadfully for half an hour while we were at breakfast. I wanted them to put off the wedding. By the by, I have not wished you joy. Being pretty well aware of what sort of joy you must be feeling, I have been in no hurry with my congratulations. But I hope it all went off terribly well. How did you all behave? Who cried most? Ah, poor Miss Taylor, tis a sad business. Poor Miss and Miss Woodhouse, if you please. But I cannot possibly say poor Miss Taylor. I have a great regard for you and Emma, but when it comes to the question of dependence or independence, at any rate, it must be better to have only one to please than two. Especially when one of those is two such a fanciful, troublesome creature, said Emma playfully. This is what you have in your head, I know and what you would certainly say even my father was not by. I believe it is very true, my dear, indeed, said Mr. Woodhouse with a sigh. I am afraid I am sometimes very fanciful and troublesome. My dearest papa, you do not think I could mean you or suppose Mr. Knightley to mean you. What a horrible idea. Oh no, I meant only myself. Mr. Knightley loves to find fault with me, you know. In a joke, it is all a joke. We always say what we like to one another. Mr. Knightley, in fact, was one of the few people who could see faults in Emma Woodhouse, and the only one who ever told her of them. And though this was not particularly agreeable to Emma herself, she knew it would be so much less so to her father that she would not have told him really suspect such a circumstance as had not been taught perfect by everybody. Emma knows I never flatter her, said Mr. Knightley, but I meant no reflection on anybody. Miss Taylor had been used to having two persons to please. She will now have but one. The chances are that she must be a gainer. Well, said Emma, willing to let it pass. You want to hear about the wedding, and I shall happily to tell you for we all know and we all behaved charmingly everybody was punctual everybody in their best looks not a tear and hardly a long face to be seen oh no we all felt that we were going to be only half a mile apart and were sure of meeting every day dear emma bears everything so well said her father for Mr. Knightley, she is really sorry to lose poor Miss Taylor, 
and I'm sure she will miss her more than she thinks for. Emma turned her head, divided between tears and smiles. It is impossible that Emma should not miss such a companion, said Mr. Knightley. We should not like her so well as we do, sir, if we could suppose it. But she knows how much the marriage is to Miss Taylor's advantage. She knows how very acceptable it must be at Miss Taylor's time of life to be settled in a home of her own. And how important to her to be secure of a comfortable provision and therefore cannot allow herself to feel so much pain as pleasure. Even if every friend of Miss Taylor must be glad to have her so happily married. And you have forgotten one matter of joint to me, said Emma, and a very considerable one, that I made the match myself. I made the match, you know, four years ago, and to have it take place and to be proved in the right, when so many people said Mr. Weston would never marry again, may comfort me for anything. Mr. Knightley shook his head at her. My father fondly, her father fondly replied, Ah, my dear, I wish you would not make matches and foretell things. Whatever you say always comes to pass. Pray do not make any more matches. I promise you to make, I promise to make one for myself, none for myself, Papa, but I must indeed for other people. It is the greatest amusement in the world, and after such success, you know, everybody said that Mr. Weston would never marry again. Oh, there, no, Mr. Weston, who had been a widower for so long, and who seemed so perfectly comfortable without a wife, so constantly occupied either in his business or in town, or among his friends here, always acceptable whenever he went, always cheerful. Mr. Weston need not spend a single evening in the year alone if he did not like it. Mr. Weston certainly would never marry again. Some people even talked of a promise to his wife on her deathbed, and orders of the son and uncle not letting him. All manner of solemn nonsense was talked on the subject, but I believed none of it. Ever since the day, about four years ago, that Miss Taylor and I met him in Broadlane Lane, when, because it came to Moisel, he doubted a little with such gallantry and borrowed two umbrellas for us from Farmer Michel's, I made up my mind on the subject. I planned a match for that hour and when such success has blessed me in this instance, dear Papa, you cannot think that I shall leave off matchmaking. I do not understand what you mean by success, said Mr. Knightley. Success supposes endeavor. Your time has been properly and delicately spent. If you have been endeavoring for the last four years to bring about this marriage, a worthy employment for a young lady's mind. But if, which I rather imagine, your matchmaking, as you call it, means only your planning it, you're saying to yourself one idle day, I think it would be a very good thing for Miss Taylor if Mr. Weston was to marry her, and saying this again to yourself every now and then afterwards. Why do you talk of success? Where is your merit? What are you proud of? You made a lucky guess and that is all that can be said. And have you known the pleasure and triumph of a lucky guess? I pity you. I thought you cleverer for depend upon it. 
A lucky guess is never merely luck. There is always some talent in it. And as to my poor word, success, which you quarrel with, I do not know that I am so entirely without any claim to it. You have drawn two pretty pictures and I think there may be a third. It's something between the do-nothing and the do-all. If I had not permitted Mr. Weston's visits here and given many little encouragements and smoothed many little matters, it might not have come to anything at all. After all, I think you have made, I think you must know how food enough to comprehend that. A straightforward, open-hearted man like Luston and a rational, unaffected woman like Miss Taylor may be safely left to manage their own concerns. You are more likely to have done harm to yourself than good to them by interference. Emma never thinks of herself. If she can do good to others, rejoined Mr. Woodhouse, understanding but in part. But my dear, pray do not make any more matches. They are silly things and break up one's family circle grievously. Only one more, Papa. Only for Mr. Elton. Poor Mr. Elton. You like Mr. Elton, Papa. I must look about for a wife for him. There is nobody in Highbury who deserves him. And he has been here for a whole year and has fitted up his house so comfortably that it would be a shame to have him single any longer. And I thought that when I thought when he was joining their hands today, he looked so very much as if he would like to have the same kind office done for him. I think very well of Mr. Elton, and this is the only way I have of doing him a service. Mr. Elton is a pretty young man, to be sure, and a very good young man, and I have a great regard for him. But if you want to show him any attention, my dear, ask him to come and dine with us some day. That would be a much better thing. I dare say Mr. Knightley would be so kind as to meet him. With a great deal of pleasure, sir, at any time, said Mr. Knightley, laughing. And I agree with you entirely that it would be a much better thing. Invite him to dinner, Emma, and help him to the best of the fish and chicken. But leave him to choose his own wife. Depend on it, a man of six or seven and twenty can take care of himself. The end of chapter one. So chapter one is basically an introduction of the characters in the book and there are not many characters. We have Mr. Whitefield, Miss the Governess, Mr. Woodhouse, and we learn that Emma's mother died when she was very young. And then we also got introduced to the governor's husband. These are the characters we've seen so far in the movie, in the book, rather. And the Woodhouse, the the Woodhouse, the family, Emma's family, Emma Woodhouse. Her father is like the highest ranking person in the neighborhood they live, and Emma has lived a lonely life from childhood, and she only had her governess as her companion because her sister also got married. So we see that she's a bit sad that she's actually very sad that her governess has gotten married, but also at the same time, 
happy that Afkovnus is happily married to someone whom she is in love with. So she is torn between accepting her the marriage and being wishing that it hadn't happened. And we also see that her father, who is a very affectionate person and sensitive, was also affected by the fact that the family is getting divided, but not like in a bad way, but more like everybody is just living their own lives and they're not as close-knit as before. So that is basically what chapter one has been about. And one thing to note is that What is, I mean, is the theme of class and just the social differences, the class differences between the wealthy and the poor. And this is also seen in Jane, in some of Jane Austen's books like Pride and Prejudice, where every day there is a division. We have the middle class, the upper class and the lower class. And you see that Emma Woodhouse belongs to the upper class. And that's why she finds it difficult to socialize with her fellow people who live in the village of Highbury. Because they either don't meet her level. And so the kind of conversations she would have loved to have, she can't even have them with the people around her. And... She can't be seen socializing with them because it's just not done. And similarly in Pride and Prejudice, but I'm not discussing Pride and Prejudice now, but we can also see that in Pride and Prejudice, the, the Jane Austen, I mean, Elizabeth Bennet, the Bennet family are from the middle class and we just see that recurring in Emma. So that's one thing I've been able to note about Emma. So I think that is all I have to say about chapter one. Should, I don't know if I should start chapter two. I would love to read chapter two and probably reread it here on the episode. But of this episode, I'm going to read chapter two and so that I can have more to talk about when I'm doing a review of it here. But then, I think I should read chapter 2 because it's just 3 pages and I don't want to delay this any longer. I'm really looking forward to chapter 2. Perhaps we'll meet another character. So let's dig in. Okay, let me have my cup of milk. Chapter 2 Mr. Weston was a native of Highbury and born of a respectable family which for the last two or three generations had been rising into gentility and property. He had received a good education but on succeeding early in life to his small independence had become indisposed for any of the more homely pursuits in which his brothers were engaged and had satisfied an active, cheerful mind 
and social temper by entering into the militia of his country then embodied. Captain Weston was a general favorite and when chances of his military life had introduced him to Miss Churchill of a great Yorkshire family and Miss Churchill fell in love with him. Nobody was surprised except her brother and his wife who had never seen him and who were full of pride and importance which the connection would offend. Miss Churchill, however, being of age and with the full command of her fortune, though her fortune bore no proportion to the family estate, was not to be dissuaded from the marriage, and it took place to the infinite mortification of Miss the Miss Churchill, who threw her off with due decorum. It was an unsuitable connection and did not produce much happiness. Mrs. Weston ought to have found more in it, for she had a husband whose warm heart and sweet temper made him think everything due to her in return for the great goodness of being in love with him. But though she had one sort of spirit, she had not the best. She had resolution enough to pursue her own will in spite of her brother, but not enough to refrain from unreasonable regrets at that brother's unreasonable anger nor for missing the luxuries of a <clears throat> I need water of a former home. They lived beyond their income, but still it was nothing in comparison of Enscombe. She did not cease to love her husband, but she wanted at once to be the wife of Captain Weston and Miss Churchill of Enscombe. Captain Weston, who had been considered especially by the Churchills, as making such an amazing match, was proved to have much the worst of the bargain, for when his wife died, after a three years' marriage, she was rather a poorer man than at first, and with a child to maintain. From the expense of child, however, he was soon relieved. The boy had, with the additional softening claim of a lingering illness of his mother's, been the means of a sort of reconciliation and Mr. and Mrs. Churchill having no children of their own, nor any other young creature of equal kindred to care for, offered to take the whole reluctance, the whole charge of the little Frank soon after her decease. Some scruples and some reluctance the widow of father may have supposed to have felt, but as they were overcome by sordid considerations, the child was given up to the care and wealth of the Churchills, and he had not only his own comfort to seek and his own situation to improve as he could. A complete change of life became desirable. He quitted the militia and engaged in trade, having brothers already established in a good way in London, which afforded him a favorable, a favorable opening. It was a concern which brought just employment enough. He still had a small house in Highbury, where most of his leisure days were spent, and between useful occupation and pleasures of society, the next 18 or 20 years of his life passed cheerfully away. He had, by the time, realized an incompetence enough to secure the purchase of a little estate adjoining Highbury, which he had always longed for, enough to marry a woman as portionless even as Miss Taylor, and to live according to the wishes of his own friendly and social disposition. 
It was now some time since Miss Taylor had begun to influence his schemes, but as it had not the tyrannic influence of youth on youth, it had not shaken his determination of never settling till he could purchase Randall's. The sale of Randall's was long looked forward to, but he had gone steadily on with these objects in view till they were accomplished. He had made his fortune, bought his house, and obtained his wife. I was beginning a new period of existence with every probability of greater happiness than in any yet passed through. He had never been an unhappy man. His own temple had secured him from that, even in his first marriage. But his second must now show him how delightful a well-judging and truly amiable woman could be. I must give him the pleasantest proof of its being a great deal better to choose than to be chosen, to excite gratitude than to feel it. He had only himself to please in his choice. His fortune was his own. For as to Frank, it was more than being tactically brought up as his uncle's heir. It had been so avowed an adoption as to have him assume the name of Churchill on coming of age. It was most unlikely, therefore, that he should ever want his father's assistance. His father had no apprehension of it. The aunt was a capricious woman and governed her husband entirely. But it was not in Mr. Weston's nature to imagine that any caprice could be strong enough to affect one so there, and as he believed, so deservedly there. He saw his son every year in London. I was proud of him, and his fond report of him as a very fine young man had made Highbury feel a sort of pride in him too. He was looked on as sufficiently enough to the place to make his merits prospects a kind of common concern. Mr. Frank Churchill was one of the boasts of Highbury and a lively curiosity to see him prevailed, though the compliment was solely to return that he had never been there in his life. His coming to visit his father had been often talked of but never achieved. Now upon his father's marriage, it was very it was very generally proposed as a most proper attention that a visit should take place. There was not a dissentient voice on the subject, either when Mrs. Perry drank tea with Mr. Mrs. and Miss Bates, or when Miss and Miss Bates returned the visit. Now was the time for Frank Churchill to come among them and the hope threatened when it was understood that he had written to his new mother on the occasion. For a few days, every morning, visits in Highbury included some mention of the handsome letter Mrs. Weston had received. I suppose you have heard of the handsome letter Mr. Frank Churchill had written to Mrs. Weston. I understood it to be a very handsome letter indeed. Mr. Woodhouse told me of it. Mr. Woodhouse saw the letter and he said he never saw such a handsome letter in his life. It was indeed a highly prized letter. Mrs. Weston had of course formed a very favorable idea of the young man 
and such a pleasing attention was an irresistible proof of his great good sense, and a most welcome addition to every source and every expression of congratulation which her marriage had already secured. She felt herself a most fortunate woman, and she had lived long enough to know how fortunate she might well be thought, where the only regret was for a partial separation from friends whose friendship for her had never cooled, and who could ill bear to part with her. She knew that at times she must be missed, and could not think without pain of Emma's losing a single pleasure or suffering an hour's anew from the wounds of her companion Punest. But there Emma was of no feeble character. She was more equal to her situation than most girls would have been, and had sense and energy and spirits that might be hoped to bear her well and happily, though its least difficulties and privacy and privations. And then there was such comfort in every distance of Randalls from Hartfield, so convenient for every solitary female walking, and in Mr. Weston's disposition and circumstances, which would make the approaching season no hindrance to their spending half the evenings in the week together. Her situation was altogether the subject of hours of gratitude to Mrs. Weston, and of moments only of regrets had no satisfaction, her more than satisfaction. Her cheerful enjoyment was so just and so apparent that Emma Willows well knew her father was sometimes taken by surprise at his being still able to pity poor Miss Taylor when they left her at Randall's in the center of every domestic comfort, or saw her go away in the evening, attended by her pleasant husband to a carriage of her own. But never did she go without Mr. Woodhouse giving a gentle sigh and saying, Ah, poor Miss Taylor, she would be very glad to stay. There was no recovering Miss Taylor, no much likelihood of ceasing to pity her, but a few weeks brought some elevation to Mr. Woodhouse. The compliments of his neighbours were over, and he was no longer teased by being wished joy of so sorrowful an event and the wedding cake, which had been a great distress to him, was all ate up. His own stomach could bear nothing rich, and he could never believe other people to be different from himself. What was unwholesome to him, he regarded as unfit for everybody, and he had therefore earnestly tried to dissuade them from having any wedding cake at all. And when they had proved vain, as earnestly tried to prevent anybody's eating it, he had been at the pains of consulting Mr. Perry, the apothecary, the apothecary on the subject. Mr. Perry was an intelligent, gentleman-like man, whose frequent visits were one of the comforts of Mr. Woodhouse's life. And upon being applied to, he could not but acknowledge, though it seemed rather against the bias of inclination, that wedding cake might certainly disagree with many, perhaps with most people, unless taken moderately. With such an opinion, in confirmation with his own, Mr. Woodhouse hoped to influence every visitor of the new married pair, but still the cake was eaten, and there was no rest for his benevolent nerves till it was all gone. There was a strange rumour in Highbury of all the little Paris 
being seen with a slice of Mrs. Weston's wedding cake in their hands. But Mr. Woodhouse would never believe it. Oh, what a joy to read chapter two. I think chapter two is a bit more interesting than chapter one because we get to know Mr. Weston who married their nanny, the governess rather, and who married Emma's governess. And we see that he is, we learn about his history and how he grew to be a comfortable man and he has a house and a settled man he was married before. And the married Walford, a son whom he gave to his in-laws to take care of. And he, he will learn that he's good enough, at least to an extent. And he, chapter 2 ended with the, a funny funny scene of Mrs. Wood, Mr. Woodhouse just being miserable with that and sad about the wedding <laughs> to the extent that he doesn't like seeing the wedding cake or he doesn't like people complimenting making comments about the wedding because he wasn't although it was a joyful event he wasn't he was no longer he, he, he saw it as a sorrowful event basically and that is chapter two it was really good and i look forward to chapter three but we haven't got much time now and to be honest my voice is cracking and, and I need to sleep so yeah this was good and this was fun I think you guys should really read should read this Emma if you want a soft copy you can always email me on my profile you can check my profile for my email and I will send you a soft copy definitely. I sell ebooks on Instagram in case you want to check other books out, but any book I read here is totally free. All you have to do is email me and I will send you a soft copy. Because I think everybody should read Emma. I'm reading it, so I would definitely love someone else to join me in this challenge. <laughs> so thank you guys for staying so far to the end of this episode it was nice i think i should wait till it completes an hour of me recording this it's about 15 minutes now and this is the longest episode i have recorded so far on this podcast i think so yeah this was fun this was really fun and i'm trying to figure out what which other book to read next on here let me know what you would like me to review next is going to be a book review not a book reading this episode was a book reading of jane austen's emma see you in the next one <laughs> good night hello i'm your host nosakari osatohame and you are listening to the wandering black bird podcast a podcast created with storytelling in mind join us as we explore life through books faith reviews diy and self-care